Can you imagine anything more countercultural right now than someone to sit and really listen to another person through a book? You know, novels are a special form of literature because they are capable of deadly serious psychological and philosophical explorations of the human predicament. And I think what happens when you lose a culture of reading, everything becomes ephemeral and everything is forgotten very, very quickly. We know that the people who are leading are the good communicators and communication is mastery of language. The beauty about reading though, is it begins to chisel away at that stone that blocks the cave door. Welcome to Reading and the Common Good, a new podcast from the Trinity Forum, where we discuss the enriching and humanizing activity of reading deeply and well. We encourage you to put the ideas discussed in today's conversation into practice by hosting your own reading group. Check out ttf.org slash book club for help getting started. In today's episode, Trinity Forum President Cherie Harder will speak with author and professor Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, who has published multiple books, including Booked, Literature and the Soul of Me, and On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. Together, they'll discuss the challenges to reading literature that we face right now, as well as how great books can help us to develop the classic virtues. This episode is an edited version of our online conversation that was recorded in April of 2020. You can find the full conversation with video on our website. Here's Cherie Harder. Karen, it's great to have you here. It's great to be with you. So you've now written two books on the joys of reading. Uh, and I wanted just to ask you, how did you become an avid reader and what was the first book you loved? Oh, goodness. I became an avid reader first because my mother read to me as a child. Um, my earliest memories are being read to. And one of my most vivid memories is actually that moment when I was in my room reading Dr. Seuss, using my finger and reading the words out loud. And I played library when I was a child. I got all my books together and put them on a shelf in the basement and made my friends check them out. <laughs> I don't know if they wanted to or not. And so I was just a proverbial child with my nose in a book. I wasn't necessarily reading you know, classic literature, but I read all the wonderful children's stories. Walter Farley's The Black Stallion series, I think is one of the first series that really came alive to me as a as a young person. I loved horses and books. And so I just re have read for all of my life until I became an English major and then an English professor. So the first book that you wrote on reading itself, Booked Literature in the Soul of Me, you described at one point as a love story. And I wanted to read how you described it because I just thought it was beautiful and would love for you to comment on it. You said, it's the story of how my deep love of reading slowly meandered into a deep love of God. By reading widely, voraciously, and indiscriminately, I learned spiritual lessons I never learned in a church or Sunday school, as well as emotional and intellectual lessons that I never would have encountered within the realm of my lived experience. Most importantly, by reading about all kinds of characters created by all kinds of authors, I learned how to be the person God created me to be. So how did reading indiscriminately, even promiscuously, teach you spiritual, emotional, and intellectual lessons? And what, what do you think you learned? Well, you know, I do really, that is the story of that book, and I give a lot of them there. And, you know, I, I did grow up in the church, and I've been a Christian since I was a very small girl. And somehow, you know, I grew up in Sunday school and even teaching Sunday school, 
Uh, but somehow the books just took me outside of myself and my small world. I grew up in rural Maine. There's not a lot that happens there. Um, so I was able to just cultivate an imagination um, through reading books. And, and the Sunday school answers always seemed too easy and too obvious. I kind of learned the do's and the don'ts. And, but when I read, for example, Gustave Flaubert's Madame Bovary, it changed my life because I recognized in the character something in myself that had never really been explained. And I learned how it, it just brought together a lot of the do's and the don'ts I learned in church into a more, in, into life, a life that I didn't live, but I could watch someone else living and, and think about the same things that this character was thinking about and avoid the same mistakes that she made really. Um, and so that's just the story of my life is reading these works of literature, seeing people and encounters and watching them experience things that I wondered about and thought about, but didn't have to experience for myself because I could just um, see how these worldviews had consequences in the lives of, of people, even though they're fi they were fictional people. Now, in your books, you assert that there is a link between reading well and virtue. Maybe you could unpack that a little bit for us. Sure. That was, uh, that writing that book was kind of a journey. It wasn't even the book that I set out to write, but um, I have, you know, as a, as a lifelong or nearly lifelong Christian, I have thought through about the first half of my adult Christian life um, in terms of Christian worldview, which is kind of integrating biblical concepts and principles into every part of our life. And that's, that's kind of been my, uh, my way of approaching and thinking um, for a number of years. And, but then I encountered the thinking of, of writers such as another uh, Trinity Forum fellow, James K.A. Smith, who writes, has written a number of books on the way that our, we are liturgical creatures. We develop our loves and our practices through what we do. The more we do something, the more we develop a desire for that thing. And we train our desires through the practices that we engage in, whether they're conscious or deliberate or, deliberate or not. And so I began to think about how my lifelong practice as a reader um, has cultivated not only the love for reading that we've talked about, but even the kind of empathy and understanding that people who know me well observe that I have. And it's not like it's something that I've tried to gain. It's something I see now has come through this lifelong practice of reading and, and the practice of seeing the world through other people's eyes and understanding how their language shapes their perception of what's happening to them. So once I began to think about that, I began to think about all of the different virtues, the classical virtues, such as, as prudence and temperance and courage and humility. And so I just sat down to study those and to see not only how we can see lessons about them in literature, because that's one way of approaching literature, but how actually the reading of literature, literary works can cultivate those virtues in us more than just through the form of the literature, not just the content of the lessons. One of the metaphors that you use in your book repeatedly, which I thought was really beautiful and wanted to ask you about, was you frequently compare reading to a friendship, you know, in that reading well adds to our life the way that having a friend uh, adds to our life. Uh, just last week, we were talking with psychiatrist and neuroscientist Kurt Thompson, who talked about how relationships and what we pay attention to literally rewire our mind. Uh, they rewire neurons. And in many ways, uh, 
your metaphor there seemed a different way of sort of unpacking that, that reading changes us the way that having a friend changes us. And one of the things that I think is quite interesting too is that uh, time spent on electronic media is correlated with essentially uh, unsocial, even antisocial or socially disengaged practices. The more time you spend on social media, the less likely you are to spend time on friendships with other people engaged in civic activities, the less likely you are to volunteer or to give to charities. With reading, all of the associations and correlations seem pro-social. Now, that is the more time you spend reading, the more likely you are to, to vote, to give, to volunteer, to um, give time to friendships. And I wanted if you, I wanted to ask you about what it is about reading which is a solitary and isolated activity that lends itself to engagement in the way that other storytelling media do not? That is such an excellent question. And of course, when the novel first began to arise in the early 18th century and then grew in popularity in the 19th century, a lot of social critics were very worried about these young people sitting in rooms by themselves reading books. It seems sort of like a, 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 a revolutionary activity, actually. Um, that's a whole history in and of itself. And so we have to have that sort of measured understanding that we don't always understand the effects of the cultural medium of our time. And it's probably true of digital media as well. But I just you know, when we're on digital media, when we're reading tweets or Facebook posts or, or whatever, we're reading to respond. We're reading to like, oh, what's my response going to be? How am I going to react to that? But when we're reading a book, we're reading a work of literature, it's the kind of conversation we get to think and, re and, and reflect, but we can't respond in that sense. Mm -hmm. It's like sitting down to coffee with someone and hearing their story and we don't get to interrupt. We have to just listen to what is happening to them, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, and we can make our judgments in our mind and you know, make our observations, but we don't get to respond. We're just listening uh, in a metaphorical way. And we just, we don't do that on social media because we have that opportunity. And in fact, we're, we're encouraged and prompted and enticed to respond quickly and more and more. And literature is the exact opposite. We're just listening and seeing the world through someone else's eyes. So uh, in one of your works, you quote this wonderful passage by philosopher Martha Nussbaum, and I'm going to read it and just ask for you to respond to it. It's really beautiful. She said, we have never lived enough. Our experience is without fiction too confined and too parochial. Literature extends it, making us reflect and feel about what might otherwise be too distant for feeling. The point is that in the activity of literary imagining, we are led to imagine and describe with greater precision, focusing our attention on each word, filling each event more keenly. And so I wondered if you could do a little bit of on-air reflection and perhaps tell us about a time where your own immersion in literature enabled you to more keenly empathize with someone else or more wisely perceive the reality of the situation you were in. It's actually one that I wrote about in On Reading Well. It's a short story by George Saunders called 10th of December. And just sort of a little caveat out for anyone out there listening. George Saunders is a very edgy writer. He's dark. He's difficult and, and not uh, light. But what he does, his craft is that he, he really gets inside the character's mind. 
and he writes in a way that reflects the way such a character might think. And so in the story of 10th of December, he brings us into the mind of a, of a young, romantic, foolish boy who's unpopular at school and has retreated to his world of imagination. And then also the mind of a man who is dying um, of terminal cancer. And he bring these, brings these two characters together in a way that literally changes their their lives and the way that saunders writes allows us to just kind of see the world through each of these characters who who are very different from me i've never been a 10 or 12 year old boy and i've never been a man you know with terminal cancer yet i have experienced things that are very similar to what those characters have gone through and uh you know with, with suicide and attempted suicide in in my family and in my circles and that is something that the, the story centers on and so that, that kind of combination of familiarity and strangeness, the commonality that we share, and then the particularities of the, those experiences, I mean, that's what literature does for us. It, it, does, it holds both of those things in tension. We can read about someone so vastly different from us in a world vastly different from our own, and yet the words that they use, the images that they use, are ones that are also familiar and that we can bring back to our world and see in the same way, using metaphors, using similars, similes, using language to connect one thing to another. And our whole life as human beings is really about connection. It's about connection, connections with our family, with our friends. It's about making connection of one idea with another, connecting this principle with that political candidate. We're trying to connect everything all the time. And language is the medium by which we do that. And it's unique to being a human being. And so it is just part of what it means to be human. And so reading literature just enriches and um, develops that ability in us. One of the things I noticed in your, uh, your book on reading well, which um, to all of our viewers, we definitely recommend, was you talk about many of the different virtues, including the fairly unfashionable virtue of temperance. In many ways, in the last decade, five years or so, it often seems that the extremes and acting along the lines of extremes, the fracture of the extremes and polarizing rhetoric uh, and actions have actually been valorized, even sacralized in both political and religious spheres. And I wondered what your own reading how it's affected you in both thinking about the virtue of temperance, about thinking about our own polarized times, and in dealing with some of the controversy you've had to face over the last couple of years. Well, I think, uh, you know, in, in the most literal sense, the way that we've been talking about reading has expanded my empathy and perspective so that it's, it's just easy for me to kind of understand someone else's point of view, even if we disagree. Whether maybe that's something that's just also I'm hardwired to do that, but but I it's just easier for me to see see the perspective of someone else, and so being able to see both sides, so to speak, I think that in itself tempers my response to someone that I disagree with. I also think you know temperance is, is the virtue that moderates our you know our physical passion so that we don't indulge too much or too little, and we often think of it as just simply either restraint or excess, that, that we, th we think of those terms, as you mentioned. But virtue itself, the definition of virtue itself is a moderation. It's the absence of the quality that in its excess becomes a vice or the quality that in its, its deficiency becomes a vice. 
And we just live in a culture that tends to think, well, if something's good, then more of it is better. Or if something's bad, then none of it is good. And temperance and virtue itself um, show us that even that moderation itself is a virtue. And I don't mean in terms of being lukewarm or being, you know, compromising, but simply not being excessive and not being deficient. And temperance points us to that. It's, it's the most sort of literal of the virtues it's because it's centered on Aristotelian terms. It's centered on food and drink and sex. And we have to have food to live, but we shouldn't have too much. And we have to reproduce if the human race is going to continue. And so it's just about bringing all these things into moderation. And that is a model for everything that we do. A, a time to be silent, a time to speak up, a time to listen, a time to speak out. The Bible has lots of wisdom about this. And the ancients did as well because they were made in God's image as well. And, and God's truth, all truth is God's truth. So we have couple dozen questions all lined up from our viewers for you. First one is, if you had to choose one or two novels for all college students to read, which would you choose? Two works that all college students should read. Now, I, I do want to give the caveat that my specialty is British literature, so I just, I just tend to think of British literature and not American literature, um, I suppose. So I, I, you know, I almost, it's harder for me to answer. So just in terms of the kinds of things that I teach in British literature, I would say Pride and Prejudice. It is not a love story. The people who haven't read it think, oh, Jane, it's because if they've seen the films, the films are generally bad. All of Jane Austen is satire, it's comedy of manners. It's really about how we can conduct our, can and should conduct ourselves and correct ourselves in society. And love and marriage are just kind of the, <laughs> the object lessons. And then I think probably the most important novel for um, a college student especially because it really is about becoming well it comes that quote that you drew from booked earlier was in the context of becoming uh, becoming who god created us to be and jane eyre is the novel that is about that journey of each soul to become who it is supposed to be and to resist all of the temptations even the good temptations because sometimes we're tempted to do good things but that are not good for us and that's really what Jane Eyre is about. And even though, again, it centers on a female character, it is really an allegory of the human soul. So our next question is from Bethany, who asks, can you discuss the differences between reading on a digital device or audiobooks versus an ink and page book? Well, there, there is a lot of research out there on this, um, and I think there needs to be more. And, and the, you know, and, and you can get, I, one of the most, uh, Hotly contested tweets that I've sent in the past few months had to do with whether audiobooks are the same as reading. And I, I wow, people really get worked up about that. Um, there is ample research indicating that when we read something digitally, we're actually using a different part of our brain uh, than we are when we're reading a printed page. Um, so there is a difference. Um, the, I've only seen a little bit of research, and it, there could be more out there, on the audiobooks. And what I saw indicated that, that that seems to replicate a written page more so than the screen. I think, it, I think it's all good. I just, reading is reading, but I definitely, and I listen, I have, I have, I'm learning to listen to audiobooks. I'm incorporating that more into my 
my regimen. I listen to audiobooks when I'm running, but they are um, generally entertaining books that are light because I, I just can't concentrate through, through listening enough to pay attention to a literary work. I am definitely very biased toward that physical object, that aesthetic form that we can hold in our hands and turn and smell and touch and know where we are in, in, in location, like just feeling the weight of it and knowing how many more pages we have to go. It, there's, there's just a physicality and a geographical and aesthetic sense of experiencing a book in our hands. That's not scientific. That's just me. Take it or leave it for what it's worth. Cheryl asks this question. So many of the classic English works are steeped in Christian language, values, etc. But our culture is increasingly secular and biblically illiterate. How do you think this affects people's desire to read and appreciate great novels? Mm. Yeah, that's that's a good good uh, question. So much of again of this past several hundred years worth, or even more of, of great literature is just immersed in Christian language and culture. Now that doesn't mean it's really Christian, but to appreciate it, to even Shakespeare. I mean, Shakespeare's uh, his plays, his poems are just. I mean, he just reflects a biblical culture, Christian worldview. And I think maybe if Christians want to, who don't read literary, it might be an encouragement or enticement for them to know that and to realize I can read Shakespeare and look for um, the Christian ideas and the Christian principles. That can be a help. If you really want to get kind of down into the details of it, one thing that you can definitely do is buy works of literature that have good footnotes and good annotations um, to them so that you can catch the illusions that we might not otherwise catch. It's, it's so easy to buy the cheap editions that are reprinted on Amazon and, you know, I'm not, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But you would be amazed at how much more you can get out of a work if you just get an edition that has even just a few footnotes. And I'm not even talking about, you know, scholarly apparatus or something, but just that has some explanatory notes. You can get so much more out of it. So that's what I would recommend. Uh, so a question from Becky Imperial, who asked, how can a teacher of elementary or middle school age kids encourage them not only to read, but to read well? Mm. That is a great question. I think approach reading in all of the ways. I remember being in, in fourth and fifth grade and uh, not only being assigned to read books on my own and do book reports and those things, but the, the teacher also set aside time and read aloud. You know, we'd pick up a novel, Island of the Blue Dolphin, we would go through that and she would read it to the class. So we were being read to, we were being assigned to read outside the class. Encourage uh, young people to, to read things that they really like so that they cultivate a desire to read. Definitely encourage them to read more than Harry Potter. Harry Potter's great, <laughs> but I'm finding more and more students uh, coming up who fell in love with reading through Harry Potter who, who are not reading other things. They just sort of only know that. So, so it kind of can be a balance. You want them to read things they enjoy and love, but also kind of expand, expand that. And so I think, again, reading, reading widely, reading to them, having them write and comment about that, what they're reading, maybe have little discussion groups, because it, it can be very infectious to have conversations, good, lively conversations about what we're reading, like we're, what we're doing here. One of our guests on a previous um, podcast, actually, Dana Joya, who is the Poet Laureate of California, had said at one point that the best possible way for parents to encourage their kids to read is intuitively to read to them. Uh, he said the second best way is perhaps less intuitive, which is to read in front of them. 
Mm. You know, and essentially to model uh, the fact that there is something so attention grabbing and engaging, uh, even more than they, that it, it piques uh, students' interest. Is that something you have noticed or, or seen in your own students and their backgrounds? You know, that's, that's a good question. I get them so, you know, later, and I don't see them really in their family context. So I don't, and I get English majors, they're already uh, lovers of reading. Um, I, I may have to start just asking that. I, how did they develop this love of reading? Is it something that's modeled for them at home? Most of what they say, it, it tends to be more that they're sort of the outliers, you know, and they have to sort of explain themselves and explain their choice of major to their families. But it, in some ways, maybe it's always been that. So a question from Paul, who said, if losing long-form reading has dire consequences, are there strategies for recovering it, both for our generation and the next? Yeah, you know, it's so, uh, of course there are strategies, but again, it has to be intentional. There's a, you know, a lot of cultural histories will make this observation. I'm thinking, you know, I think Jean Edward Heath is someone who introduced me to this idea in one or two of his books, but this idea that during the so-called dark ages it was the the monks in the monasteries who were preserving the written word the bible itself and all the extra biblical literature you know the barbarians were raging outside the monastery walls the world was falling apart and into chaos and it was the christians who were preserving the word this time you know in this case by hand copying um over years and years and here we are at the end of this era, whatever it is, you know, slipping from modernity into post-modernity or whatever follows. And again, it can be and should be, and we don't know if it will be, the Christians who are preserving, uh, you know, not, not, you know, we, it's easy to preserve the written word now, but what we really need to preserve now is the ability to read well and to read long form. This is why I do, you know, I've never gone to or taught in a classical Christian school, but man, those, those institutions are doing this work. Kudos to them. Christian educators are, English departments everywhere hopefully are, some more or less. I mean, they've been kind of taken over by ideologies and political agendas over the love of literature. Just as the monks were intentional and were doing this work um, on purpose, we need to do it as well, because the people in power will always be the people who know how to use language well. We can either give it over to them or we can be the ones who steward this wonderful gift of literacy and think all of the thinking and understanding and ability to, to perceive truth from falsity that comes with it. Do you have any recommendations for books to read in community with friends or books to engage a group of friends or family member to become closer? Hmm. I think that I think that's a wonderful idea to use books in this way. Um, you know, the, the, you can just simply look at um, at uh, the bestseller lists and see because if you're talking about trying to kind of reach a wide variety of readers, um, you know, I know Beth Moore and I did a little Twitter book discussion uh, over Christmas break on where the crawdads sing, which was a book that just was kind of, you know, taking off and taking the world by storm. And it, it it's a, books like that are, you know, they have some literary quality, but they're also pretty accessible. Um, and so there's so many out there like that. It, it's not hard to find good books. I would um, suggest that you, you read reviews and kind of know what you're getting into because there are so many different kinds of books for different kinds of people. It's easy to pick the wrong one. And that's why I'm always hesitant to make specific recommendations because 
there are just so many books and I just want people, you know, if you don't like one that you pick up, there, there are others. Um, and so uh, there are lots of good resources. I put out a list a couple of weeks ago about books to read in a, in a pandemic at, at Religion News Service. Um, and again, it just depends on your taste and the, and the mood. Um, uh, so there is a lot of value in, in, in making the right choice, but you can do a little research to make sure you're picking one that will be, um, that will satisfy the audience that, you're, that you have in mind. Uh, Karen, I was hoping you could just leave us with a last word, either a summing up or a final thought. I'm going to read Pied Beauty by Gerard Manley Hopkins, one of my favorite poems, uh, because I just can't do better than, than that, I think. So is that all right? That's great. All right. He loved words, and I, I hope this entices you to love them more. Pied Beauty. Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color as a brinded cow, for rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim, fresh fire-coal chestnut falls, finches' wings, landscape plotted and pieced, fold, fallow, and plow, and all trades their gear and tackle and trim. All things counter, original, spare, strange, whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how, with swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle, dim, he fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Praise him. Karen, thank you. And thank you for joining us. Thank you. And to all of our listeners out there, thank you so much for joining us and happy reading. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Reading and the Common Good, a podcast from the Trinity Forum. And don't forget to check out ttf.org slash book club to find everything you need to start your own reading group.